Ah. Yep. Let's see if I can. Got it. Wow. Okay. Yep. I'm just gonna start recording. Can you pause it? That's a really good question. Let's do this. I'm Kelly, founder of Gauthier Search, a specialist data science and AI search firm. And I'm Greg, former chief data scientist at Channel 4 and co-founder of Memrise. Together, we are excited to present The Data Dig, a new podcast for business leaders, hiring managers, and curious minds. In each episode, we'll dig into, dissect, and debate a new topic within the realm of data science to get informed and make new discoveries together. We might even have a few laughs along the way. Okay, here we go. Hey, Greg, how are you? I am doing well, Kelly. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. I'm really good. Are we pretending that we haven't just been talking for half an hour when we start this episode? <laughs> yeah, let's pretend we've never met, in fact. Um, let's do that. So, uh, is it sunny where you are? And in fact, where do you live? And uh, <laughs> who are you? No. So, um, uh, we, will, we will hit the ground running. Today, we're going to talk about diversity, focusing on data science teams. But um, I think a lot of this has been relevant more widely, um, in my experience, than just data science. So we're going to talk about um, how to hire for it, how to nurture it. And uh, I think it's something that we, we both feel pretty strongly about, pretty passionately about. Really passionate about, for sure. And it's something that you and I have discussed over the years many times and uh, is obviously very topical at the moment. All of our awareness has been raised um, in the last year or so, especially, I feel like there are so many more companies out there raising people's awareness of diversity and um, bias and all that sort of stuff. So yes, very excited to talk about something we're both super interested in and have lots of common ground about. Okay, so let's let's lay the foundations by starting by talking about what do we mean by diversity, and then I think we're going to make a little bit of the economic case for why someone who is, um, should care about this just from a hard-nosed business perspective. Yeah. So let's start with what is diversity. I guess uh, it can take many forms. The ones that tend to get emphasized include gender, race, age, sexual orientation, religious persuasion, disability, cultural and social background. And I'm sure there are others that I haven't included. Yes. And on top of all of these visible forms of diversity, we also need to think about diversity of thought. So diversity of personality, of approach, of training, background, and things like skills too. Like diversity doesn't just come in a superficial sense. It's also in the way you approach things and the way you go about living your life. Exactly. I think that's really key here because uh, it's easy to focus on just like, you know, the gender ratio or something and miss the wider point, which is that we are, well, there's, there's a sort of endless number of dimensions along which people can vary. And that often um, that many of those dimensions that don't get paid attention to are important. So let's, let's start with a question that someone might ask, perhaps not out loud, but in their heads, is there a worry that all this focus on diversity is going to mean choosing worse candidates? Um, um, or ending up with an inferior team in some way? So in short, no, <laughs> we shouldn't be worried about that. If anything, it's the opposite. So there's abundant evidence that suggests that diverse teams consistently outperform homogenous or uniform teams. So McKinsey 
um, in a report they released in 2015, consistently found that more diverse companies outperform less diverse companies. They surveyed 366 public companies, and their findings demonstrated that companies in the top quartile for gender, racial, and ethnic diversity were more likely to have financial returns above their specific industry median. So in other words, the data actually suggests that diversity correlates with better financial performance. There's no doubt about that. Great. And uh, we'll include a link to that McKinsey study in the show notes. They list a, a whole bunch of different uh, results like that. They showed a linear relationship between uh, ethnic diversity and better financial performance. In other words, for every you know few percent you increase your racial and ethnic diversity on the senior executive team, you make more money. <laughs> right? That yeah. appears to be the strong correlation. And um, you know we can also see this borne out perhaps in our daily lives. Um, so there's strong empirical evidence to suggest that greater diversity means that you you know end up being more economically successful. And, you know, you can imagine lots of reasons for that. It may be that there's an underlying factor that companies that are more diverse perhaps are more, I don't know, humane or have some other uh, behaviours, uh, company cultural uh, factors that are helping. But you know, these are the data. They seem to sort of strongly suggest that it's a good idea from a purely hard-nosed business perspective. And, you know, if you're designing any kind of product or offering any kind of consultancy, the wider the range of perspectives that you can draw on, the more likely that you're going to be able to empathize well with clients and see gaps in your product that you might otherwise miss. So, you know, the the evidence uh, and indeed common sense both seem to align quite squarely with what I would hope most people would see as a kind of obvious moral imperative as well. Yeah, and, and, and that same report actually provided strong evidence to, to suggest that once you establish practices that result in recruiting and building diverse teams, those diverse teams will attract diverse teams. So that kind of phenomenon becomes uh, self-perpetuating. So, you know, if you start out having to take, like undertake a ton of work to, to create a diverse set of employees within your organization, that in itself will get you further ahead when it comes to recruiting diverse employees on an ongoing basis. So it may take a bit of a leap initially, but once you're, you know, once the wheels are turning, hopefully that will just continue to to kind of self-perpetuate in your organization as part of your company's DNA. And we'll talk a little bit about how you get that virtuous circle going or how you reverse a vicious cycle if you're sort of staring at a team that is comprised of a single stereotype or something. Uh, let's take it now as read that increasing diversity in your team and indeed in the way that you um, hold your conversations um, will improve the performance of that team, all other things being equal. And um, we'll talk a little bit about what else you need to do to make sure that that's true in a bit. But for now, let's focus then on the, um, you know, the next immediate question that one might have is, how can I increase uh, the diversity? How can I, how can I hire? Um, how can I get more diverse candidates? How can I um, make sure that, that, that the people that we pick end up being um, drawn from a wider pool successfully? Yeah, totally. So that's not something that just happens by accident. You don't just wake up one day and think like, oh, my company is going to be more diverse. And, and you know, I'm and like it requires uh, forethought and a commitment from yourself and from the people around you in your business and also like a concrete strategy. And I just want to shout, shout you out quickly, Greg, 
uh, as you've explicitly highlighted diversity as a top priority to me every time we've worked together. And it's kind of refreshing that you actually, you know, make a point of explicitly stating that every time we conduct a search. And it's inspiring um, because not, uh, I would say like, you know, the majority of my clients that I work with don't always state it explicitly. So I appreciate all of that. And I know that you have your own reasons for that, you know, from your, your academic background and your research and all that. Yeah, I mean, I have to say it's it's because often I found myself managing teams that weren't diverse. And then once I did this research on how can I improve the effect of my team and, and realized that this was a major factor and that the, one of the simplest things you can do to increase the effectiveness of a team is to make sure there's at least one lady. I was like, oh, crikey, I'm missing this enormous trick aside from feeling, you know, guilty. And, um, and you know, the easiest thing you can possibly do as a hiring manager um, to improve the diversity of your hiring pipeline is to mention it to recruiters. Because the way I figured it, um, if I say upfront, this is an important factor, um, and then, you know, follow with action, not just with words, um, then to the extent that a recruiter only has a small number of women, say, in their pool, then they're going to make sure I see them. So all the people that don't mention it are almost certainly getting, in effect, discriminated against by recruiters. That's at least my assumption. Yeah, totally. And I think also that recruiter, um, you know, whether it's me or any other recruiter is going to hold you accountable to that statement too. Like if you say it out loud, then you're kind of, um, I don't know, you're, you're planting your flag in the sand and you're saying like, yes, we're going to be diverse in this hire. I'm making it a priority. And, you know, remind me of this because it's easy as you go through the process to forget that that was like a real hallmark of, of, of your, of the search initially. So, um, I think, you know, stating it out loud and, and revisiting it is important. But in terms of working with recruiters or just trying to generate a diverse talent pool, however you go about doing that, one way that you can ensure that you have a diverse range of applicants uh, from, a from a very basic level is just to uh, make sure that everyone involved um, understand what diversity actually means. Um, make sure that you all are singing from the same hymn sheet, as it were. And, you know, beyond that, you can consider, like, you know, within your organization having, like, a, a DE&I or unconscious bias training program if you don't already have one. What's DE&I? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Um, and so making sure that everyone is on the same page when it comes to what diversity actually means and what it means to your organization is really important. And then as you go about trying to generate applicants or headhunting people to come into your organization and you start reviewing CVs, one really kind of quick way you can you can um, set yourself up well is to blind those CVs. So, you know, whether that means taking the names of the people off, um, taking away mentions of gender, specific schools or universities, even dates, you know, to remove uh, age bias or discrimination um, is a really kind of easy way to set yourself up, uh, set your funnel up to not be um, biased from the outset. And that's something you've done before, haven't you, Greg? Yeah, exactly. Because I could, I could feel, you know, when I'd, when I'd read somebody goes to a fancy university, um, I could sort of feel myself reading the rest of it being like, oh, yeah, 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 they're, they're definitely smart. Oh, yeah, 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 sure, look. And then you get their technical task, you're like, oh, yeah, this is the smart person. And and even if you're um, not, you, you kind of can't help it. And in fact, I trained as a psychologist. And if 
if there's one thing that we we know as psychologists, it's that there's loads and loads of stuff that we are not aware of that is influencing our behavior. That that the brain is like largely iceberg under the surface, and so you know we can be primed, we can be anchored, um, which is to say we can be biased by facts to change our decisions without even realizing it. And you might be like, oh, no, no, I'm not biased. I have this reason or that reason. Turns out the brain's really great at coming up with reasons after the fact to sort of justify its bias without being aware that that's what's happening. So you basically have to, have to assume that you are biased or that you 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 can be biased, you can be nudged by these extra factors. And the only antidote is uh, to not know. Um, you can't kind of deliberately reverse it or undo it or ignore it. You simply have to make sure you don't know. That's that's why all all good psych, uh, psychology experiments are blinded or double blinded. I no one knows you know what's going on and therefore they can't accidentally you know nudge the results a Ouija board style. Um, I used to have a Ouija board. Um, so uh, what else can you do? You can, well, a really important strategy is to structure your qualification criteria beforehand and make sure that, you know, rejecting or progressing with a candidate isn't just based on a gut feeling or on superficial decisions. So have a set of criteria set out that everyone agrees upon and that every step of the qualification process um, where you're revisiting that list and making sure that if you're rejecting someone or progressing someone, it's not just based on, you know, liking the cut of their jib, but actually because they've, you know, met the qualifications or not. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of someone with an extremely well-cut jib, <laughs> whatever that might be, I, um, like, I, I think uh, the, uh, the structured criteria are a great idea for a few reasons. First, firstly, it forces you to think through in advance, like, what are we looking for? Totally. And it may be that you deliberately set up your interviews or your interviewers to try and, like, get at different aspects of what you're looking at for a candidate. Okay, great. So that all, you know, makes um, sense anyway. It also, as you say, by... Um, by clarifying the means by which you're going to judge people, it makes it, it, it sort of avoids that situation where someone's like, oh, well, this person looks good um, based on their so-and-so. And then, oh, well, yeah, but that person looks good based on the other. And you're constantly making up new reasons to say, oh, yeah, but my candidate looks good in, uh, in other ways and offsetting them. Whereas if you agree in advance, like these are the means by which we are going to assess candidates, then uh, things end up just being, you know, more stable. There's, there's less room for your bias to kind of inject itself in uh, kind of unexpected and unknown ways. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that makes sense uh, as, as, a, as a step too. Absolutely levels the playing field, um, just allows everyone a fair shot, I think. And then beyond that, just taking a proactive approach to decision-making discussions is is an interesting one, you know, because obviously at a lot, at every step, I hope, of a recruitment process, you know, people are sharing feedback with each other if there's a number of people involved in determining who's going to be hired. Um, so before going into those discussions, there are certain things you can do to make sure that those discussions don't get... Um, you know, they're fair and no one is influenced by external factors. So for example, you can write your feedback about that candidate down before going into the meeting rather than just, you know, thinking, oh, I'll just do this on the fly in the discussion. So you're not influenced by what other people say, which is something that has been proven to happen, you know, just say like, oh yeah, what he said 
rather than actually sharing your own thoughts and feelings. Another interesting thing is that you should eat before you go into these discussions or, you know, if you're hosting the discussion in a meeting, have croissants available, you know, because apparently people make more biased decisions when they're hungry. Yeah, this is, there's some uh, actionable tips on this. If you're, um, if you're in court, try and make sure that your court appearance is after lunch rather before. Um, Parole judges, for instance, are much more um, likely to deny you parole if they're hungry. Uh, Amazing, amazing results. So, you know, if if it's true in a criminal court, you can pretty much guarantee it'll be true in a hiring court. Totally. And I read a study, I think it was from Trinity College London, um, Trinity College Dublin is what I meant to say. (laughs) And um, it said that apparently when you're low on um, sustenance or food before making important decisions, you are more likely to make a decision that or or make a choice that will uh, benefit you in the short term because your animal brain takes over and you're hungry. So uh, instinctively, you're going to make a choice that's going to mean that you survive. So you will benefit from it in the short term rather than in the long term. So if you go into a decision making process, make sure you're well fed so that you know, you're not uh, maybe making those decisions with the more primal part of your brain. That's a bit of a stretch, maybe, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. So beyond that, I think a funny one, one I've thought about a lot, actually, is Companies will talk about culture fit as a criterion for uh, qualification. And I think it's important to ask whether that is actually a valid criterion, culture fit. What does that actually mean? If quote unquote culture fit is, you know, that that person reflects the ethos or values of your company, like maybe, but are you able to assess that during an interview process? I don't know. Is that something people just throw out there as an excuse to not be mean in their feedback sometimes? I think maybe, you know, people kind of use that as a crutch. Yeah, I really find this one tricky to think about because on the one hand, I think there is something meaningful, especially if you're a company with a strong culture where you have a culture of, I don't know, uh, you want to hire iconoclasts or you want to hire people who are unafraid of conflict or whatever your particular um, company culture might be. Then I think it is valid to say we need to make sure that we are looking for that and certainly um, flagging it uh, in hiring. But I suppose there are examples where um culture fit might accidentally be um we might accidentally be sneaking in um things that are hurting our diversity of our profile by calling it culture fit so if you sort of say okay well everyone you know we like craft beers then you're basically guaranteeing that you're going to get a bunch of you know 30 something white guys with beards from uh hipster parts of london right like accidentally though that might be something you all like to do you have made it much less likely you're going to hire a woman from a different background, you know, different age, whatever, because, you know, craft beer does correlate with those those features, right? 100%, you know, like you probably won't end up with people who drink or you probably won't end up with like mums who can't go to the pub after work or whatever. You know, you're immediately eliminating huge segments of your talent pool. So it's tricky because you might decide that that going to the pub after work is an important part of your culture, but you then have to recognize the effect it's having. So I I think that's one that requires maybe some case-by-case thinking. Cool. Okay, great. Um, And then the other thing you can do uh, before going into these types of discussions is to, uh, going back to what we said earlier about defining what diversity means, you can also make sure that everyone is aware of the different types of bias 
and how, what effect they might have on your decision making. Greg, you've got a lot of expertise when it comes to this stuff. Can you talk us through the different types of bias just to kind of refresh us? Well, so there's so many. If you go to the Wikipedia page for cognitive biases, there's a sort of hilarious list of 30 or 40 that have been named. Everything from halo effect, which is sort of once you've already formed a positive opinion of someone, then you kind of make assumptions that are positive about them in other ways. Framing is, is one of the ones we've talked about where, you know, having heard something, it's, it's then more likely to influence your decisions thereafter. But, you know, rather than trying to enumerate them, I'll just tell one story that uh, really sums it up for me. Uh, and it's about, it's about orchestras. And if you've been to an orchestra, you know, in the last 20 years, you'll probably see the gender ratio is often more or less at parity. It wasn't always so. A uh, hundred years ago, orchestras were entirely men. Um, and even after the laws changed and women were allowed to be part of orchestras, in practice, hardly any of them were ever selected. The turning point came when I think one orchestra, it might have been Boston, I'm not sure, started perform having its auditions uh, behind, literally behind a screen, behind a, a curtain, so that you could not see the person who was playing, you could only hear their music. And when you say it like that, you're like, well, of course, that's the way we should choose who should be in an orchestra, because it's really how well they play, not what they look like that matters. And as soon as they did that, the number of women uh, in an orchestra started to uh, reach parity. At least that's the story. I think the statistics are a bit complicated, but it, it, it illustrates this point that um, we might or might not have the best intentions, but only when things are blind can we be sure that we are not accidentally making decisions based on factors that we do not want to incorporate. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a good sort of example of, you know, companies or organizations or whatever standing in their own way. You know, you can have the best of intentions. Like we just want the best people, you know, it doesn't matter. But when you go in with this sort of uh, assumption, as we all do into situations like that, you just shoot yourself in the foot. So removing the possibility of applying that is the best way to overcome it. And I'm really glad that there's lots of women in orchestras now. So, okay, it's all well and good to talk about diversity and inclusion in hiring, but, you know, there's a stark reality to contend with, Greg, which I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention it. And when we're speaking to directly to gender diversity, like there are just simply fewer female data scientists out there than there are male data scientists. Like I know this because when I do a search, anytime I do a search for a client, the talent pool that I initially start out with to kind of fish from is always abundantly men. So I think it's it's safe to say, this is sort of a, a commonly accepted fact that there are just fewer females in STEM jobs generally. And it's hard enough to find a great data scientist or machine learning engineer full stop, as you and I both know, let alone a strong field of female candidates who happen to fulfill all the requirements for the job and are open to new jobs like at that precise moment. So the same extends to racially and ethnically diverse candidates. So the question is, how do we fill the funnel with a more diverse workforce? Like, we, you know, we can't ignore that, that question. Otherwise, we're not having like a complete conversation. So yeah, we need to discuss that. Yeah, and it's tricky because it may be that the best way to have, you know, a tree when you need one is to have planted it 100 years ago. And, and, and so there are some steps that need to be taken sort of systemically and, and well in advance. I think if you're willing to take even a medium-term perspective, say, of a couple of years, then there are various programs that yield fruit on, on the scale of a couple of years, including um, reaching out to university students partway through a program or part-funding masters, which, 
you know, works really, really, really well, but is incredibly time, labor, and, you know, relatively cost intensive. But but if you're willing to build a relationship with someone at university such that when they are looking for a job in a year or two's time, you're the first person they contact, I mean, that kind of program, especially if you're hiring at scale, totally makes sense. And there's a million versions of that. Yeah, totally. And if you zoom out even more on that, it's like, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation now will yield a positive effect 10 years from now, even more so if you zoom even out even further, like, you know, I was saying to my husband this morning, like, we really need to make sure that Hazel and Duncan code, you know, like, <laughs> they're, they're one in three. <laughs> so it's like, the future generations will benefit from us having this conversation now. But you know, we need to talk about how we can have an impact in the short to medium term, too. And so, you know, we have to think about things like, how can we overcome stereotype threat, for example? Like apparently women are less likely to actually enter academic fields um, because they feel like they won't be as good at those fields as men. Like there's a, a, Stanford, uh, a Stanford study that actually shows this effect. So women may feel diminished confidence in their abilities, not because they're not as good, but because they are perceived as being less good. So, you know, we need to take that into consideration, I think. So the work needs to start even before university. Like, how can you raise women to believe that they're going to be just as good at coding and just as good at, at, at math and at science and physics and, and you know, as their male counterparts? Because there's a systemic kind of um, issue there, for sure. Um and part of that, too, is around having, you know, female and ethnically diverse role models, whether that's teachers in primary schools or secondary schools or, you know, people who are prominent in the business world or in the public sector who reflect, you know, diversity so that, you know, these young people coming up have people to look up to. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, stereotype threat, if I remember, is a it, it's a it's a weird and insidious phenomenon where basically just reminding someone, for instance, reminding a woman that she's a woman right before taking a physics test, she'll do less well. Um, apparently in America, if you remind um, an Asian person that they're Asian right before they do uh, a math test, they do better. Right. So there's a sense in which um, if there is a stereotype and I'm not suggesting anything other than that is the stereotype that exists. And if you remind someone of that stereotype, it affects their behavior. Wow. So, you know, um, I, I suppose the obvious point there is if you're going to run a hiring process, don't keep reminding people of their diversity in the process, because um, otherwise, uh, you know, you're, you're going to create the stereotype threat effect. Um, and, 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 you know, I think there's an obvious thing you can also do, which is make sure you've got diverse people on your interviewing committee. You're, you're going to be a lot less plausible saying we care a lot about diversity if you have like five white into white male interviewers in a row. Uh, it just doesn't, yeah. no, it doesn't, it doesn't ring true. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when there are prominent female leaders in your company, advertise that or, you know, leaders from ethnically diverse backgrounds or who reflect different levels of, of physical capability or disability, like promote it you know like it, you don't hide don't hide that light under a bushel like let it shine you know what i mean um so yeah i think it's important for sure and i think that there's definitely work to be done to overcome those things but i think the fact that we're talking about them and companies are are making more of an effort will make a big difference so i guess if if we were to be a bit tactical for a moment are there some roles that you find particularly difficult to fill or to hire for um, in terms of diversity? Are there some roles that are really, really difficult? 
I mean, in the kind of realm that I work, I would say they all are. <laughs> like, I don't think that there's one that stands stands out as more than others. In data science, that is? In data science, yeah, exactly. So the roles that I typically look at are data scientists, machine learning engineers, data engineers. Um, the further up you go in seniority, the harder it is. I think that's just a natural byproduct of the the ratio of men to women in the talent pool to begin with. You know, if you if you think about like who progresses, who gets hired, I would say, you know, when I'm doing director level searches, I'm way more likely to have an issue finding diverse candidates, um, which is a shame. Yeah. It is. It's harder to find diversity as you get more senior. And I'm hesitant to generalize, but I found it harder to hire, for instance, more diverse data engineers. Like I think every data engineer I've ever hired has been a guy, and I just kind of accepted that. Um, and so as a result, it meant that I worked much harder for roles where it's not so difficult to make sure that at least as a team, um, there was some diversity, even if some roles, yeah, I just kind of gave up on it. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, I think you have to you have to take the opportunity when you can. And sometimes you just have to admit that, you know, uh, that more diverse candidate you're looking for isn't going to be represented in that specific search. But as long as it's always top of mind, you know, you know that you're you're moving in the right direction. Let's say you've improved your hiring process and you've built up a team that's diverse on paper in terms of ethnic backgrounds, um, sex physical ability, et cetera. That doesn't necessarily mean that the people who are in that team will feel safe expressing their opinions um, when they go against the grain, um, speaking to uh, you know psychological safety. So how can you encourage diversity of thought in a diverse team? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, you know, you use that term psychological safety, and it's it's there's a technical term, psychological safety, that I think captures what we're we're asking here. The background for me was I, I first heard about this a few years ago when I was reading this amazing set of studies released by Google, where they basically said, okay, how can we kind of scientifically try and figure out what it is that is common to all of our most high-performing teams? And they came out with sort of five fundamental factors that that, that high-performing teams tend to exemplify. And it's not, um, you know, how smart they are, or or at least, I mean, I think that's a factor, but it's not the most important, right? The, the number Number one factor they highlight is psychological safety. And psychological safety is broadly like, are you willing to take a risk? Are you willing to do something where you might get it wrong? Are you, um, or are you trying to play everything so safe because you are worried about how people will, will you feel humiliated? Will you be chastised? Will you be fired even if you screw something up or uh, disagree? And so psychological safety is basically your, uh, as a as a member of a team, how willing are you to take a risk? And that 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 willingness, that psychological safety, ends up being one of the biggest predictors of how well the team performs. And I think it's super relevant here because basically you can hire as diverse a team as you like. It can look like the you know United Colors of Benetton doing data science, but if those people all end up going along with the hippo's opinion, the hippo being the highest paid person's opinion, if everybody just kind of waits for the boss to say what it is that they think and everyone goes, yeah, 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 sounds 
sounds like a good idea, then you're not getting uh, the benefits of, uh, <laughs> of having a diverse range of opinions. So there's so much we could say about how you create a psychologically safe team. But, you know, obvious things that Google highlight uh, and that other people have highlighted include modeling as a leader being wrong or admitting that you don't know, not punishing people <laughs> when they go, uh, when things go wrong and, you know, deliberately trying to encourage people to take risks and then being forgiving of them when, uh, when, when things go wrong. I think that whole discussion we could come back to, but I think it is important to say that diversity for it to be most effective doesn't end when you finish time. We hope you enjoyed our chat today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure to leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. As always, we'd like to say a very special thanks to Misha Frankel Duval for producing our podcast and bringing today's episode to life. Join us again in two weeks' time when we dig into, dissect, and debate a different area of the ever changing data science landscape. Bye for now.